0: The story of Poland is the story of a people who have never lost hope, who have never been broken, and who have never, ever forgotten who they are. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Such a great honor. Through four decades of communist rule, Poland and the other captive nations of Europe endured a brutal campaign to demolish freedom, your faith, your laws, your history, your identity. Indeed, the very essence of your culture and your humanity. Yet through it all, You never lost that spirit. Your oppressors tried to break you, but Poland could not be broken. Our adversaries, however, are doomed because we will never forget who we are. And if we don't forget who we are, we just can't be beaten. Americans will never forget. The nations of Europe will never forget. We are the fastest and the greatest community. There is nothing like our community of nations. The world has never known anything like our community of nations. We put faith and family, not government and bureaucracy, at the center of our lives, and we debate everything. We challenge everything. We seek to know everything so that we can better know ourselves. It's our time to take a stand. Remember who we are. Remember who we are. There's a call.
1: Welcome to the show. Listen in the real world with Ryan and Redmond on We Are America Radio, your number one source for political talk and government opinion. My name is Justin Ryan. And I'm David Redmond. David, glad to be back with you. Uh, it's the dog days of summer, usually a slow news cycle, but nothing in Trump world
2: is ever a slow news cycle, isn't it, David? Yeah, never a slow news cycle anymore, where Trump brings in massive ratings, so we can turn any, any minor detail into a major controversy.
1: And some of them have gotten bigger with time. Um, I mean, goodness, David, for a White House that was under siege from day one, um, you know, we've gotten used to in conservative media Republicans and conservatives saying over and over again that Democrats and the left are just still mad that Trump won the election. That worked for me for a
2: while, but it's gotten stale. Yeah, it's very stale. The whole story is kind of stale, waiting for new information. They have this new stuff about Donald Jr. now coming out. And some meetings on the surface look potentially shady, but if you dig deeper into it, you know, not really criminal, not at that level. Maybe it's seems inappropriate to some people, but I, I don't I haven't noticed any laws that were specifically violated at this time with what we know so far.
1: Yeah, as usual Democrats um are probably right morally uh on this issue with Wait, Donald Jr. Democrats but are usually of the has facts. Is that is that what you just said? On this particular matter. Okay, actually, okay. Um I think some of the things have been saying about the, the Russia thing are usually on on reasonable ground philosophically, but not with the facts um, that's begun to change this past week, David, when we keep getting all these changing amounts of people at that meeting with Donald Jr. last June with, you know, a former Russian current intelligence expert, a lawyer, Uh, some other person we don't know all for nothing burger story well this gets stranger
2: i bet when hillary stood there with that reset button with the russia ambassador or one of the russian officials i bet she never imagined it would be with the trump family right and when obama leaned over real close and said after the election i'll have more flexibility to another russian um high-level official i bet he never thought that you know trump would be making the negotiations now so i find that all very ironic It is ironic. I mean, it's just –
1: but why are they lying to us? I mean, it's such a nothing – like, look at Shepard Smith's um, treatise on Friday or Thursday whenever whatever it was with um, with Chris Wallace from Fox News Sunday. I mean, you spoke for a lot of the country. Like, if it's just such not a big deal, it's nothing burger, it's fake news, it's a – you know, as uh, Donald Jr. said in in his Sean Hannity, you know, uh, water carrier PR for the White House uh, show on Fox News Channel. You know, it was just it was something you would have done differently, but it wasn't a big deal. Didn't even mention it to his dad. And they just keep lying to us. The first one was it was about adoption. Was a meeting, they actually told us the first day that the meeting was about adoption, nothing else.
2: Well, if you're also being accused of high level collusion and you know, that's you don't consider that meeting anything of a big deal, then I can see how maybe it slips your mind, maybe but uh, he did release a bunch of the emails that were relevant to that conversation right away, and you know that that seemed like a step in the right direction for transparency. And you know he didn't start smashing cell phones with hammers and you know beach, bleach bidding the uh, emails. Right, he actually released them. Good call, and I think he did some credit
1: for that. Some of the left, like Joe Scarborough, might get to that uh, little. Uh... I could have sworn he was a Republican congressman. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair thing, and Joe Scarborough is just sort of a, a, an, an odd rogue who can kind of do whatever he wants. He's kind of in an interesting ideological space where he can go in different directions that other people in media, on television, on the radio, just can't. They alienate an audience where Joe Scarborough is kind of a broad brush of, of where he's at politically. Um, but, but David, I just don't understand if there was such a nothing meeting, and why can't they be straight about the most basic details with us, and how the hell are these people governing, and how can they?
2: That's a fair question. I think they obviously could have managed it slightly better, but they are being attacked 24-7, so I think some missteps are to be expected. And you know we look at this White
1: House, and um, you know some of the flashpoints. Obviously, Steve Bannon. Um, David, I had heard uh, a while back. We've ta- talked about Steve Bannon as being obviously an alt-right figure. He is considered the antichrist, literally on Saturday Night <laughs> yeah, Live. He's
2: portrayed as death. You know, yes, death, yes. right?
1: Um, but he was sidelined a couple of months ago for reasons I'm not sure, other than maybe running afoul of, of Jared Kirshner.
2: Yeah, they definitely had some heat behind the scenes and apparently that seems to be very true. So some actual real reporting by some news outlets there and seem to be somewhat accurate. And
1: then you have some other characters like um of course Kellyanne Conway. Um she has viewed as being um uh you know, drifted back from the limelight as well after having some not great media um uh, performances with um, with CNN and with others having some some clashes that you know just didn't make her look good and that she was defending uh, strange things or as it often happens with all these characters, David in, in the White House, is they go out there. You know, some of them who are, are less known are well known operatives in Washington and doing this a long time are ba- basically competent. They go out there uh, giving one set of uh, descriptions of a story and then the next day uh, the boss. Uh, tweet something out at 4 o'clock in the morning that counter counteracts everything they just worked on, everything
2: they just said. Yeah, that seems to be happening less frequently, but those are certainly some uh, major issues when they did occur. Uh, I hope they've gotten that sorted out, but uh, not very envious of that PR team because that's a tough, tough to deal with when that occurs, but I think they're getting better at that.
1: And you just wonder if this is going to be a White House that is going to somehow get better at this and they'll be able to do some of the hard stuff. Um... Rather than like the you know the ease of what's going on, I mean, none of this really helps the uh, Senate health care bill. That's what the Trump White House is focused on, at least trying to sort of push that across the line. What the hell Trump was doing on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson, I don't know. He's trying to shore up evangelical support for the the Senate bill, but. It, this is an odd conundrum with him being on that show I don't know what the hell he's doing on there David <laughs> not exactly his natural audience at least in some uh, measure I don't care how many evangelicals came out to vote for him because of uh, Hillary's um, you know really strong pro pro uh, partial birth abortion views or whatever but um, you know he's trying to go out there and, and sell the thing but be on the outside of it where it's sort of Mitch McConnell's game um, we still have basically three or four no votes they're probably gonna stay no votes but but Mitch McConnell may put something together by Tuesday that's going to, you know, pull us across the finish line. But I think a lot of Washington wags are saying they just don't have the votes.
2: They don't. And people like Rand Paul are very, they just want a straight repeal bill because it's a mess and the process not very appealing to many Americans. And hopefully there are some major improvements in the bill, but it's really not what many Republicans campaigned on in the Senate or the House. And that's why you've seen them get a huge edge over the Democrats in all the governing structures across the country. And they're not really delivering on that promise. And it's been difficult
1: for Republicans because this is something that's been going on for seven years now. Obviously, they've said for seven years that they're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And they've had some election cycles they have had some success, um, even before they won the presidency with Trump in 2016. They were showing that they could... Um, You know, fire some uh, warning shots across the bow of this behemoth that is Obamacare. They try to do it in 2013 with defunding the thing. They try to do it after winning the Senate in 2014. Um... With obviously not, not only other repeal bills, but trying to tackle some of the Medicaid expansion, trying to get premiums down, all those things to where we are now. We actually have a president who wants to repeal the thing. And the feeling amongst most Republicans, I think, in, um, in the Senate and the House, David, is that Trump wants a bill. And at this point, will pretty much sign anything, viewing it as a step in the right direction, even um, though folks like Rand Paul have some pretty strong objections to it.
2: That's true, and that's the unfortunate nature of this, because Trump does want what what is best, but he he also wants a bill. He needs a bill that he can sign just to say he he did it. And, you know, I don't think he might not be up to speed on all the minutia, and it's very complex, and he's admitted so. And that's actually a point for the government shouldn't have gotten so far involved in health insurance market, because it is complex. The private market sorts out those details better. You know, some portray it as evil, but it's complex. You need that market feedback. The government doesn't know everything yet, even though they're trying, right, with all those data mining operations. But I don't know what they're doing with that data because it's not good legislation, not yet.
1: And you're not sure what's going to sort of happen with that. I mean, really, this the Senate health care bill is is um, it's on a knife edge. And um, Mitch McConnell, who, you know, it's funny, he's been um, Senate minority leader and Senate majority leader uh, for a number of years now, for most of the last decade. He's the top dog, but he's not very well liked amongst that many parts of the party Um and, um, you know, is this going to go back to the conference committee report, ladies and gentlemen, which means that you have um, a bill, you have to have this compromise bill between the House version and the Senate version, which, of course, makes this even messier with the horse trading that's going to go on there. Um and then have something that the president will uh, will sign will do. Um, some of the tax cuts in it are are good. The restrains, you know, uh, spending. One of the biggest problems, David. Um, one of the flashpoints in this is that if we control uh, the the growth of uh, of Medicaid, that means that not only are we being mean to poor people, obviously, but particularly people with that will harm people with uh, pre-existing conditions a bit, that that will be part of the, the the broad swath of
2: that, and that people on the left are worried about that. Yeah, there's some valid concerns there, and we've discussed this before, but the it's got to be worked out. And I don't know, the current status quo is hurting many people, many working poor People that a large portion of their disposable income goes towards their health care their rising premiums, which in complete opposition to what was promised for Obamacare, the deductibles are even higher. So you can't even get to the actually using the insurance. So the pre-existing conditions is an issue. They can pass legislation specifically for that. But the the rest of the bill, the rest of the structure, what we spent so far on it seems highly ineffective, not cost effective at all for the American people. And you need more free market feedback into it. The government mandates one size does not fit all and it's it's hurting I think more people than it's helping.
1: David going back to the issue of pre-existing conditions the left has charged as well that if we're trying to get younger healthier people to buy cheaper insurance rather than take the penalty of not buying insurance because they don't really need it that much or they should be have the flexibility as we talked about on our show to
2: have i believe trump ordered they're not really even enforcing that penalty anymore so that that's was a partial repeal right there where the the executive ordered the federal government not to enforce that part of the law or not very aggressively anyway so they don't
1: have to get, but they want to calm the mar- the insurance markets, don't they? And part of that solution has to be getting healthy people to buy more insurance?
2: Yeah, but I think they would if it was priced correctly and give them more options and more specific options, more customizable options. And you'd see that if it was opened up across state lines and, you know, don't mandate minimum coverage. I think people will choose what they think they need on their own. and. That would ultimately bring up the numbers, have more participation from an earlier an earlier age. And, I mean, the reason it's tied to many employers now is caused by the government in the first place, right? There was some wage freezes type thing going on, so employers still wanted to offer more money and recruit good talent. And it ended up offering those benefits. As a result, since the salary, the straight salary was frozen, they offered benefits. So the government created that problem in the first place. And the Obamacare hasn't really solved that yet. And one of the things that that could be
1: possible and and beneficial with with this area is that there could be parts of the bill that actually make it attractive for or, or to give help to some people to move actually out, off of Medicaid and onto private insurance, which would, would there in a, in a in a mild way actually help further help but the insurance market. I
2: would, we have to look up how many people actually move off of Medicaid once they're on it because I feel like it's a very relatively small number, or at least by percentage, right? It seems like once you get on these government benefits, it's very tough to get off. And I don't – so if that's the incentive, that probably should be a good goal. It depends why they're on Medicaid in the first place. But I just see like it, it just the, – the enrollment always increases and never decreases overall. And that's the wrong direction we want to go in. Yeah, it definitely is the wrong
1: direction. And I'm wondering if if over time people are recognizing – I think I think even Democrats recognize that there are just an awful lot of doctors and nurses who are no longer taking Medicare uh, payments because – they're basically unfunded mandates that don't uh, pay them enough for the services they have to provide. And they have to provide it legally by law,
2: right, David? I believe so, but h- however well-intentioned it is, it's just not the proper pricing feedback. So you want the healthy people to subsidize it, but the, it's still just there's the pricing feedback isn't there. It's, it's the wrong mechanism. You're adding too much central bureaucracy. And, I mean, if you really study and look at the numbers since – Healthcare went from 5% of GDP to over 17%. A lot of it's the government mandates and everything they've been getting involved with. And, you know, if you think increasing that's going to make it better, I, I just don't see that happening. Sure. And and at the end of the day, do you
1: find that the Senate bill is or is not a, a decent Im- improvement on the status quo?
2: It's probably like a Band-Aid on the status quo, but uh, we need a little bit more... Operations going on than just uh, treating the wound. I don't know. So, I think passing something's better than not at this point. But if they think this is going to be the end of it, I, I can't see this as the uh, the final step in the healthcare debate.
1: Yeah, it can't be um, because there's so many other things to do uh, about it. Um, you know, including. Uh, again, just, just finding ways for wider access. Because, um, ladies and gentlemen, what, what uh, the left in this country uh, makes you believe is that um, health care in this country is, um, should be a universal right and that universal coverage is what the goal is. No, it's universal access. It's people having the ability to buy health care for their own needs, for their own families, based on their own economic situations, where they live, and what their lifestyles are. And finding options that meet those in a marketplace and then adjust the costs and and, and benefits to that to those people. A lot of these government run things uh, simply don't have the flexibility or the change mechanisms based on pricing to do that. And it's, uh, you want to tell any leftist that you know is that it's not about having it as a right. Having it as a right, which of course it isn't in the Constitution, um, doesn't actually deliver people anything except for um, you know a, a promise in the air, and we, uh, a piece of rhetoric by activists. And
2: we see the, the government's that already have a single payer system, which is held to such high regard for some reason. There's rationing. They ration. That's how they control the costs: is by rationing care, longer wait times, less quality, less innovation. Right? We see in Britain. There's this child, this baby, who has a very rare condition, but it's fatal. And they want to. They raised a lot of money. They want to try experimental treatments, and they're somehow being denied by the hospital. And the court is supporting the hospital, and that's insane to me. Because it's not at the dime of the taxpayer at that point. They're, they privately funded it. They want to bring them to the U.S. for experimental treatment, and we're not talking about anything crazy. I think it's this, uh, some sort of medicine, right? We're not like inflicting unnecessary pain here. And sure, it might not work, but you advance medicine by trying new things. And if you don't even try, you're definitely not going to make improvement for the future. So, government-run healthcare, single payer, slows down, you know, innovation and really degrades the quality of. Care sure you can say there's theoretical 100% coverage, but that quality is a lot less than it would be under what we've ha- used to have. And one of the
1: problems of the left in this country is they are uh, basically afraid and not willing um, to allow parts of the part- private sector to help determine improvements and innovation in healthcare. They think that um, you know any kind of move in that direction is just going to be uh, you know a total sellout. To the uh, pharmaceutical industry and to um, you know the health insurance uh, industry well and that all oh, that 's me terrible
2: real quick with the pharmaceuticals i 'm still waiting Bernie Sanders and Trump agree on this so wh- where 's the bill where 's the proposal from the Democrats for this international um, prescription drugs right? They can easily lift some of the regulations and restrictions that would clearly even Democrats are admitting it would bring the price down on prescription drugs so that could be easy bipartisan legislation that would help people afford their premiums, whatever they are. And uh, I think that should happen. Bernie was campaigning on it. Very popular. Trump agreed with him. Let's get something bipartisan done. Do the prescription drug coverage. And pretty much, uh, Democrats in the Senate, we're gonna do nothing
1: ever never. That's kind of uh the post Harry Reed uh reconciliation, fifty votes plus one uh crazy world we live in now in the United States Senate. Um it, it makes the divisions of two thousand four with Bush Kerry and the Congress after that look like nothing compared to what we're in now. Um um, and, David, part of me wonders that when the shoe is in the other foot and eventually, whenever that is, that the Democrats reclaim a majority in the Senate, um, it probably won't happen next year. The the numbers um, don't bode well for Democrats in terms of the amount of seats that Republicans are forced to defend. But eventually it's going to happen. And when that shoe is in the other foot, boy, um, there's just not a lot of maneuver for conservative um uh, Policy making when that time comes.
2: Yeah, but I, I see the same as you do. The 2018 midterms for Democrats, I don't. They think they're going to gain a lot of seats. I don't see that at this point in time. There's a lot of time left, but you know, they. I think they're hedging their bets and placing the bets in the wrong area. On this, all this oppositionism. And I don't see them making that many substantial gains in 2018 at this point, but you're right, probably likely the pendulum, if they don't completely kill the party, it will swing in the other direction eventually. And if if the Republicans don't capitalize on this opportunity to pass the right bills, they're, they're going to lose a big moment, and I think they put their the future of their party in jeopardy because voters are tired of it. That's why they... When for an independent like Bernie Sanders, largely in the Democratic primary, Trump, an obvious outsider to the Republican Party, won the whole thing, which no one wanted or predicted largely in the media. And if if they don't get stuff done under Trump, people aren't going to forget about what happened. And let's, that's sort of an interesting segue, David,
1: because... Um, there, there's also been even increasingly recently what is the damage to the Republican grand, brand and to to American conservatism in general with Trump, and that has meted out at least in one way through someone we mentioned earlier the whole controversy with um, Joe Scarborough and Mika um, about the tweet that went out and so forth and so on. And then,
2: are you invited to the wedding? Did you get a wedding invite? I think mine got lost in the mail. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, would I have gone? Hmm.
2: You have to go. You have to go. It's an honor.
1: <laughs> you, get, you get on?
2: Just take a
1: selfie um, and, and of leave. Cor- right. And they, they have a, a history of, of kissing his ass, don't they? Who, Scarborough? Yeah. And and Mika of like you know spending time at Mar-a-Lago and right right there's some old the air, there might but, have been
2: some photos even all these people have photos with Trump now they're all hating on him. so I don't I don't know what changed you be, you brought as a Republican and then all of a sudden they scatter I don't know what what, what happens there in the Kool-Aid at the first bit of danger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um I, I think obviously a lot in the, the mainstream media felt that um, Mika and Joe were, were were targeted and that it was, you know, a mean tweet and all those things that yeah, helped their for, visibility.
2: I didn't care for Trump's response on Twitter to that, but, uh, you know, that's his, still his M.O. If, if you dish it out to him, he dishes it back in similar style, for better or worse. But, uh, you know, that's, that's that reality nonsense that kind of goes on now. But it's also like...
1: I don't think you want to mess with Mika and Joe Scarbo because they can be so um, reasonable-sounding and, and sympathetic, I think, in front of an audience. Not just an MSNBC audience, but just a broader
2: American audience. And Brzezinski, that's like a powerful name, right? They have some good family legacy.
1: I don't even know. Oh, wait, what did her dad do? Was her dad like under
2: Carter, like a Russian intelligence guy or something? I think there's, there's some history there. People should look it up. She is. And has Joe, I, I actually, Is she taking Joe's name or is Joe taking her name? I think neither
1: are taking uh, neither. They're not even gonna going to hyphen on. it. No hyphen. Uh, I think they got a brand. They got to keep yeah, it. Yeah, when, when your brand is your name. It's tough to change it, right? And what's going to happen? Are they going to when they finally go off the air? Whenever that is, in five years, are they going to break up? and they are going to get divorced just because they're no longer a power couple? No, nah, I think it's like, how's
2: that work? I think it's legit. I think it's legit. But uh, I don't know. Hopefully, they go out better than O'Reilly did because that even Joe and me could deserve a good send off when they're done.
1: I mean, Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough—they they, they started this show uh, ten years ago when there really wasn't such a thing as a as a morning political talk show beyond kind of like the patter of um, you know Good Morning America and Fox and Friends—and they made theirs sort of required political watching from a very. Um, Early stage point in their careers. I mean, even even Dick Cheney said he loved his show, made it require watching when they are on the air for a couple of months, and that's when uh, Joe Scarborough I think could have been um, uh, much more uh, considered a, uh, um, a solid conservative. But David obviously don't, I don't care too much about uh, Joe Scarborough considering himself no longer a Republican. He's kind of not been one for a while. Um, but what do you make of the whole idea of them being a crucible suddenly of, of of Trump's grievance and then having to push back? I think Joe Scarborough loves the spotlight, so he'll run where the spotlight is, uh, whether it's someone toxic uh, that he thinks – as he thinks the president is or not. Um, but making it so personal, making about the two of them, making about two specific hosts against the president of the United States, uh, ugly, unnecessary, shot in the foot seems to me.
2: Yeah, and I know – when Obama tried his war on Fox News, it didn't go over so well, and people similar criticism. So we have to be we have to be honest, we have to be fair. Trump is, was teetering on that, right? I think some of his criticism of CNN overall in general was on the mark, and they deserved it. But yeah, when you bring it down to the individual host level and get that petty sort of, uh, it's you want to stay away from that in general. I don't think that's very fr- fruitful.
1: One of the things we hear behind the scenes that Trump had said to his surrogates was that um you know I was, I know it wasn't presidential but you know it was okay wasn't it that's what's sort of strange about this uh this you know banana republic white house is, that we're in is that the main occupant of it is not doesn't really care about the the arc of history or Uh, or, you know, the Constitution that he is led to uphold. Um, And that's just sort of the strange, um, you know, sort of events we're in. Dave, you mentioned CNN a a minute ago.
2: Yes, and I I have a conspiracy theory on that in a moment, so when we have time, I'll get to it.
1: I, I just, I mean, I... Have re- I've, I've never been a big fan of the network, not hated it, but I've been a big fan of their website for since the early days of the Internet, probably since the late 90s. I just like the way they present things. They usually have a lot of AP stories and so forth. But lately, um, if you, people think, oh, you know, uh, MSNBC is to the left, Fox News is to the right, and CNN is really the center. That's just people who aren't paying attention.
2: Yeah, that was if lazy, you
1: yeah. look – if you look at just the kind of stories they cover day by day, what are the stories top to bottom of that page? Of course, the big thing is right now is Donald Trump Jr.'s ever-changing, ever-changing story. Big thing with Democratic Senator Warner about how unbelievable uh, that Trump wasn't told over the meeting. Um, uh, Carl Bernstein on Trump, who, of course, uh, Watergate guy who we respect, but he's a little bit of uh, a liberal, a... Total sweetheart, um, Justin Trudeau, um, um, little article about him holding a baby. Um, uh, something about John McCain. Uh, NPR dodges Walker walkout. Um, the Apes beat the Spider at the office. Uh, you know Caitlyn Jenner. Six women tell their stories of harassment. I mean, they're, they're always, there are always, always, always stories uh, from, if not the left of politics and the cultural left in general, a football player comes out as gay. There's always these things that are from a particular cultural mindset but a lot of Americans only care about they find those kind of things preachy they're not really interesting they're not news they necessarily care about all the time um, and that's one reason why I think uh, CNN um, has been been going downhill for a while and that's why but David your you conspiracy theory yeah
2: Drudge Report does so well because first of all they put enticing headlines on their links but they linked all over it's not really any judge generated content. He just knows what to link for. He knows the hot topics that the American people truly care about. And that shows the opposite success of the anti-success of CNN. And my theory is it's just speculation. But remember before Trump, everyone assumed he'd lose. And they're like, oh, he's going to start Trump TV, a media company, Trump TV. Maybe his plan is whether he's got one term or two terms in the future. He's going to devalue the CNN brand so much he's going to swoop in and buy it once he's not president anymore, and then he'll start his media empire, right? Wouldn't that be something? That would be quite a play. That would be quite a play.
1: Yeah, I don't even think that's a conspiracy. That looks like uh, something – Burgeoning on possible to, to virtual certainty. There's <laughs> one thing he probably wants to get involved in. It's it's television, right?
2: Yeah, it's true, right?
1: He's it's, uh, you know up late at up late late at night watching it, getting mad all night, going to bed and then waking up and tweeting about it, uh, ticked off still about what he saw on on whoever's show. Um he's interesting because as long as political talk shows have been really a, a big mainstay of American politics, ladies and gentlemen, really since the mid nineteen eighties, no president, from what we understand has consistently really watched them. Not Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, or Obama have really actually are aware of what's going on. They're told about it and they're they're you know they have advisors who watch those things and media followers, but actually them sitting down to watch them. Which didn't really happen before. Uh but Trump openly <laughs>
2: It's amazing. Says he watches them but I think that keeps his help. blood
1: boiling or something. It
2: helps keep him out of that bubble, right? You can get in a bubble watching only cable news, but it puts them more in tune with at least what's what's in the American people's minds because the media can have a lot of control over that. What stories they choose to cover, what they don't. The internet took a big chunk out of that. People can find the stories they're interested in online on their own, but by by he's in touch with the common man, and that in that sense. Definitely
1: is. Uh, just got about out of town, Harry, on the real world of Ryan and Redman on We Are America Radio. You can follow us on Twitter at Ryan and Red and find our old shows at RyanandRed.com via SoundCloud. I think in this moment in history, David, uh, I, I think of what our times are asking for, and they're asking for all kinds of bravery and, and different things that are important. But I think when it comes to how we participate, in current events and in, in politics, the times are asking us to read a lot of different things and not trust a lot of voices that we're hearing. And I think a lot of, Um, Media commentators out there on the left and the right, they're tweeting constantly, they're making judgments about, about things they just don't have that much information about yet. They're just not clear on to get viewership, to get Twitter followers, to get all those things. And I think that in my in my estimation david that the, these times of ours we we just need to take a little bit this is before in our show just need to take a little bit more time and a little more discernment about what's true and false and what are the layers what people are saying and what the impact of those are
2: I think we'll get there the people are it's a new new paradigm, new paradigm shift, and everyone's getting used to it and I think it'll eventually as long as we maintain a free Open forum and internet that's uncorrupted. We'll get there. People will figure it out. Amen to that.
1: We'll, we'll see you next time, ladies and gentlemen, on the real world. with Ryan Redmond. We're going to have Paramore take us out. See ya. Ain't it